I'm going to start off this morning uh, with this statement, that there are some real benefits to being a Christian. I believe that. And if you've attended here for very long at all, you know that we talk about these things all the time. We talk about the things that could be considered benefits to being a Christian. But if, if you're a Christian, at some point along the way, or maybe somewhere already in your faith journey, you've come to a place, or you're going to come to a place, where it might get a little harder. Like, at some point, following Jesus is going to be hard. You're going to have to actually give something up for the sake of following Jesus. Following Jesus is going to actually cost you something. And you'll know exactly when that moment comes. Some of you might be in that moment right now. You're in the middle of making a tough decision. And and you just know. Like you'll know that Christianity has served you well. I think there are several times in the life of anyone who's a Christian who claims to be a follower of Jesus when we, we, we realize that to continue to follow Jesus is going to cost me something. And when we get to that point, your decision, your response to that moment will determine this about you. It will determine whether you continue to be a consumer or whether you become an actual follower. A consumer is kind of like, wow, look at all these cool principles. My, my marriage is better. You know, I'm going to get out of debt. I'm going to behave myself morally. I'm, it's like, things are going so good now. The outlook is positive. I have all these cool things. I'm learning from the Bible. I can sleep at night now because I know it's all going to like, God has given me the tools I need. I, I got this figured out. I'm so glad. And don't get me wrong. That's all, that's all great, right? That's a benefit. That's okay. In fact, I would argue that Jesus kind of baited people to follow him by encouraging them to be consumers at first. Like you could say he even enabled their tendency toward consumerism. Here's what I mean. Like he actually fed people a couple times. Doesn't get more consumer oriented than that. That would would bait me. Peter, uh, you know, (laughs) yeah, you could say, okay, Peter and the guys are out fishing and Jesus almost sinks their boat with so many fish they couldn't keep up, right? And he's like, you want to see some more of that? Follow me. So Jesus understood our consumerism mentality, but he also taught us, and some of us have discovered this, that there's a point of transition somewhere along the way where we go from consumer to follower. And in Jesus' day, this is not a new thing, see, in Jesus' day there were consumers and there were followers. Today there are consumers and there are followers. And I admit, I've been both. I've gone back and forth. From consumer, back to follower, back to consumer, back to... And you bump into one of those moments or a situation or a stage of life, moments in time when you realize that it's going to cost you something to become or to continue to be a follower of Jesus. So the reason I want to talk about this today is I think that we should all just know this, right? Like we should come, we should understand that this is part of the experience of following Jesus. Since our baptism here a couple, uh, well, a month or so ago... And we watched six people go public with their decision to follow Jesus. Uh, some of you have been thinking about being baptized. And baptism is an outward expression of an inward connection. Baptism is all about, I'm going public with my faith. I want to declare that Jesus is my Savior. That is, He did something for me and my Lord. I am doing something for Him. Jesus is my Savior. He did something for me. Provided salvation, provided grace, provided mercy, restored relationship with the Father, and all that. And he's my Lord. I'm doing something for him. 
You should know, and at some point along the way in your journey as a follower of Jesus, following him is going to cost you something. And that sounds ominous, like it sounds like bad news. So today we're going to look at a teaching of Jesus that is so profound. Uh, it's, profound it's so profound that if, if you made this up, like if you're one of the writers and you made this up, you would want to take credit for it. I would. It, I don't think anybody who thought this, if somebody else thought this up, they wouldn't have been like, oh, and I think I'll just give credit to Jesus. No, it's so brilliant. It brings us, this is what I love about the scripture. But it's so brilliant. It brings us to this point of decision that am I going to be a consumer or am I going to be a follower? And it sheds light on it in such a way that hopefully as a result of Jesus' words today, when we find ourselves at that moment of decision or those moments of decision, because these moments come around and around and around, but when you get to this point, if we can keep Jesus' words front and center, it's like it's illuminating. And what seems like a high price to pay to be a follower of Jesus, you really begin to understand that it's a trade that's always worth making. So the bottom line is this. Salvation is free. Like it costs you nothing. But following Jesus at some point on your journey is going to cost you something. Salvation's free, costs you nothing, but following Jesus at some point is going to cost you something. So I want to let Jesus explain this. He does a far better job than I will do since these are his words. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, so if you have your Bible or your Bible app, Mark 8 is where I want to read from this morning. If you're new to the Bible, go about three quarters of the way in. You should be in the New Testament somewhere around Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are the Gospels, the separate accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Scholars generally agree that Mark is the oldest gospel, that is, it was written first, and it was written by a friend of Peter's, a man named Mark, and Peter was Mark's source for his account of the life of Jesus. Mark chapter 8, we're going to begin in verse 27. Jesus has just finished um, healing a guy who was blind, and it, this is a weird miracle. It's like a two-part miracle, and it's very odd. I don't know if it didn't take the first time, but there's like a part A and a part B, and I don't understand really why it happened that way. Uh, people have read into it. I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to speculate, but all these people watch this two-phase miracle, and then Jesus begins to ask some questions, and that's where we're going to jump into the text. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. John the Baptist, by the way, had just been beheaded by Herod. Others say Elijah, who'd been dead a long time. And still others, one of the prophets. Now, in the first century, there was, there was just a common belief in reincarnation. So they're like, hey, maybe this wasn't that uh, unusual of a response. So maybe Jesus is Elijah reincarnated, okay? They could get their heads around that. But the idea that maybe he's John the Baptist, like think about that. John the Baptist and Jesus were contemporaries and they had been seen together. They were actually relative, they were related, they're cousins. So like how, like how does that work? I don't know. But anyway, so he says, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Now, Messiah, that's a Hebrew word. The Greek word is Christ. So he's saying, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the promised one. You're the anointed one. You're the one that I've been hearing about ever since I was a little boy. You're the one that we've been waiting for for years and years and years. Verse 30. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him, which is kind of odd. It's an unusual evangelism strategy. It's... Uh, uh, <laughs> 
it's funny, we just do just the opposite, right? He's like, right, right, good answer, good answer, Peter. Now, shh, 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 don't tell anybody. Verse 31, right in the middle of this, this incredible revelation of who Jesus is, verse 31, it says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Verse 32, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside to rebuke him. He's like, Jesus, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, what are you, what, we're having this moment. Like, don't, why are you going negative now? Like, what are you talking? Why'd you go there, Jesus? That got really dark really fast. Like, Jesus, you just did this miracle. Now, I realize it wasn't one of your best. Things didn't go real smoothly. Something, obviously, part A, part B. I don't know what's going on. But a couple passes, but now the guy can see. Pretty cool. Good job, Jesus. Then we had this amazing revelation, and we recognized who you are. And you're like, bingo, oh, and shh, we're not going to tell anybody. Don't get that, Jesus. So you finally revealed your true identity, and now you're saying you're going to be rejected and arrested and beaten and killed. Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? That's not good for you, and honestly, not good for us. I mean, like, Jesus, no one even knew our names until we started hanging out with you. You made us somebody. People know us. They recognize us. They even know our names. We're part of the crowd-feeding, miracle-working team. Let's not go negative, Jesus. Verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You've heard that expression before. This is where it comes from. Maybe you've even said it. But maybe you never heard the context. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So like Peter, you're a user. Peter, you're a consumer right now. Peter, you're in this for Peter. You're not in this for God's agenda. You're in this for your agenda. And Jesus looked at Peter's face, and he looks into the faces of his shocked disciples, and he's like, teaching moment, teaching moment, teaching moment. Verse 34. And he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he launches into this teaching. And it's so extremely profound, but we have to understand the context. He's just confronted one of his closest followers. And basically he says, Peter, you're, like, you're with me. You're walking along beside me. You're taking notes of my teaching that you can tell Mark about later. You're helping perform miracles. But Peter, you are in your mind. Your mindset is still, you're very much a consumer. And like, Peter, I understand that. But because but, like, I kind of got you into this as a consumer. Remember the whole, the, the whole fish and almost sinking your boat thing? And, and I'm like, I said, follow me. And you know, what are you going to say? No, thanks. I think I'll stay here and clean fish. No, you had to. Like, that was the only logical response. So you came and you became a part of my group. And I baited you into becoming one of my guys. But now, Peter, you got to step it up. Now we're at a different place. Peter, we're just a few days away from some stuff happening and I don't want you to bail on me. So it's time for you to move from consumer and user to follower. So it's like, come on, everybody, let's get together. I want you to sit down. I want you to listen. I want to explain this whole following thing. Verse 34, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and said, whoever wants to be my disciple. So remember, we've said this many times over the years here that a disciple uh, isn't a consumer. A disciple is a follower and a learner. A, di a disciple says, wherever you go, I'll go. Um, I'm going to get behind you. I'm going to follow you. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Now, deny themselves isn't really a tricky term. Deny yourself simply means that sometimes you've got to say no to you. 
At some point, Jesus says, you can't just use me for your benefit. At some point, you've got to move beyond all the cool principles that you're learning, you know, that help you in your life, and that's all great. But at some point, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to be something. You're going to have to look in the mirror and say no to you and yes to me. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. The cross, take up your cross. The cross is uh, jewelry for us, right? It's like decor or it's an accessory. It might be, you know, a necklace or earrings or a sticker on our car or maybe even a tattoo. It is a symbol for us. They, however, had seen crosses used. They had walked by many that stood as warnings to the Jews in that region of Rome's power. And Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to be a follower and a learner, then there's a sense in which you're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to die, maybe not, not literally, but certainly figuratively. And if Peter thought Jesus was negative before, Jesus has gone way negative now, right? So not only is he going to die, now he's saying all of you really need to die too. And they're like stunned. They don't know what to say. And they're like, can we, can we, can we just go back to doing some cool miracles? Because that was a lot of fun. And Jesus has them right where he wants them. And he says, now before you freak out, before you go, like, I don't think so, before you go looking for somebody else to follow, I want you to understand that what I'm asking, while it seems extreme, is not as irrational as you might initially think. Verse 35. He says, for whoever wants to save their life, that's me and you, it's why you see your doctor, It's why you take your vitamins. It's why you go to the gym. It's why you watch what you eat. It's why you spend time on that treadmill. This is why Jesus is a master communicator. He's thinking, let's get everyone on the same page. Everyone who wants to save their life, so it's kind of like anybody here not want to save their life? And Jesus is like, no, I think that's all of us. Verse 35, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. So think about that. Like even doctors die. Even dietitians die. Even personal trainers die. Everybody wants to save their life, but everybody eventually loses it. He says, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So I was like, wait, what? Like we were with you there for a minute, Jesus. Now, what are you talking about? Everybody who wants to save their life will lose it. Got that part. That makes sense. But everybody who loses their life, like whatever life is to you, whoever experiences a death, a loss in this life around something related to me and my gospel, whoever says no to themselves, whoever denies themselves, and in denying themselves, there is loss. There's something dies. Opportunity dies. Income dies. Reputation dies. A dream dies. Something dies. Whoever somehow loses what they consider life in this life for my sake will gain their life. They will save it. At this point, like if you're, if you're somebody who uh, does not believe in an afterlife, first of all, you're in a very significant minority. Do you know that there are only 4% of Americans who don't believe in an afterlife of any kind? 96% of Americans believe in some kind of afterlife. Most of them believe in heaven. Only about 4% of those believe in hell, which is kind of interesting. And most people, and most Americans in particular, we believe in an afterlife, but if you, if you don't believe in an afterlife, Like you live, you accumulate some stuff, you might even do some good stuff for the sake of humanity, then you die in your beetle food and your dirt, 
and it's over. The, the rest of what Jesus says will have very little appeal to you. But I want to invite you not to leave too early. I want to invite you to listen anyway. Because Jesus, who predicted that he would be falsely accused, check, arrested, check, beaten, check, crucified, check, rise from the dead, check, he also talked about an afterlife. So in this moment where he's got his audience completely confused, it's like, I don't really want to follow Jesus now because you said something about a cross. Those miracles are pretty cool. Food's not bad, but a cross? But it's true that what you said about losing my life, because even if I avoid the cross thing, eventually I am going to lose my life. Everybody knows that. So, huh, you're saying that somehow I can leverage and find value uh, in this life if I lose my life for you. So it's like, I don't know what to think, Jesus. This is so upside down. And he asks this amazing question in verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit, that is, trade away, lose, have taken from you. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? In other words, imagine you could have the perfect life, whatever perfect is for you. Live wherever you want to live, drive whatever you want to drive, be married to whoever you want to be married to, have whatever career you really want to have. What, what good would it be for you to have all of that, your perfect life, gain the whole world, and then as you get to the end of your days, because you, we've already established that, you know, if you work really hard at saving your life, you're going to lose it. Like, nobody lives forever. Like, you ever met somebody over 100 years old? You ever done that? Ever met somebody over 100 and knew somebody 100, 103, 104, 105? Like, when you, I don't know. I'm not even sure I want to live to 105. <laughs> so, uh, not sure that's all that great. So, uh, anyway, it's like, since we're all going to lose our life anyway. What good is it if somehow you've gained the whole world? Everything about your life is perfect. You get to the end of your perfect life and you have the unique advantage. Let's say you had this opportunity to peer over into the next life and you peer over into the next life and you're like, "Uh uh-oh. Like, I didn't know it, but in my attempt to create the perfect world, to gain the whole world, in the process, I have forfeited my soul. Like, if I had to do it all over again, if somehow there was a way to do life in a way that I would not have forfeited my soul, you know, that, that I'd, I'd be interested in talking about that. So like, what good is it for you to gain the whole world, but when you get to the end of this life and you look into the next life and you have forfeited or traded away or bartered away and lost your very soul, what good is that? And it really doesn't matter where you are in a spectrum of belief about the afterlife, but we would all agree that's no good. <coughs> that's not good at all. And he's not talking about heaven and hell, by the way. He's not talking about eternal annihilation. He doesn't say that. I don't think that's his point. I think his point is, I just want you to think with me for a second. If you believe there's more to this life than this life, if you believe there's something beyond this life, then you would agree with me that the last thing you'd want to do is do something in this life, even if this life is perfect, that that would forfeit what there is on the other side of your last breath, right? So like, what good is it if you have everything in this world and you forfeit your soul. And all of us, I think all denominations, all traditions, all religions, all backgrounds would be like, well, that's not good at all. So then in the next statement, he tells you something about yourself that maybe you didn't know till today. I love it when this happens. In the next statement, he says something that's true of you, that's true of me. And as soon as he reveals it, we're like, he's right. What, he has, what he's about to say about us, if we were to take this big, big thought and put it front and center 
in our lives, like in our marriages, in our dating relationships, in our parenting, in our, the way we manage our money, in uh, our workplace, in our friendships, in our church, in the way that we treat people in general, in the way that we see the world, if we were to put this front and center, because it's true, it's true of you and it's true of me, it might change everything. He asked this question, verse, 17, uh, verse 37. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So like some translations say would. What would you give in exchange for your soul? What would you give in this life for ex- in exchange for your soul? And I'm like, I know the answer. Anything, like everything, that if somehow in this hypothetical scenario where Jesus takes us to the edge, what would I be willing to trade? Because remember, everybody wants to save their life. But everybody's going to lose that life eventually. So if you're going to lose it anyway, what would you not be willing to trade in this life in order to do something for the benefit of your eternal soul? Is there anything that you'd be like, nah, I'm hanging on to that. Thanks. Nope. In this moment, we all discover something about ourselves, and here's what we discover. That your soul is of greater value than everything you're holding on to. Your soul is of greater value than anything and everything that you're holding on to. It's of greater value than all your things. It's of greater value than all your experiences. Your soul is of greater value than all your relationships. Because if at the end of this life, you're about to leave it all anyway, you had an opportunity to make a deal and push a button and trade it all for the benefit of your eternal soul, you'd push the button and make the deal. Which means, and this is really kind of, Staggering that at your core, when you stop to think about it, when we peel back all the layers, when we peel back all the busyness, when we peel back all of the curated image and reputation, when you peel back all of our fears and all of our pride and all of that, when you get right down to the core of you and me, we value our soul more than we value all the things that we spend our time and energy accumulating and securing and protecting and ensuring. You value your soul above all else. So, Jesus is like, I told you, if if you're going to follow me, it's going to require that you take up your cross, that it might have to be a death of something, there might be a loss of something, you might have to give up something, and he says to us, I know you, like, I know you, all the stuff that you might have to give up in order to follow me, like, I know you, there'll come a day, you'd be willing to give it all up if it had anything to do with the benefit and well-being of your soul. Like, what if that sat in the center of all of our decision-making? I think Jesus' audience is kind of stunned. This is not what they were expecting. I think they're probably like, is anybody writing this down? Like, we've got to be recording this. Like, someone needs to post this online right now. Like, I mean, those who... Peter, you on TikTok? Like, I mean, th- those of us who are aren't those of us who aren't gonna follow Jesus, like, we know he's right. Like, I would trade it all, like all the stuff, all the stuff I work to accumulate, all the stuff I work to experience, all the stuff I work to protect. I would trade it all for the sake of my soul, whatever that means. And he looks him in the eye, and I don't know exactly how this next part applies to you and me, but let's finish the, the passage. He looks him in the eye and he says this, verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me, that is if you're embarrassed to be identified with me, if any of you are like, oh no, I was just in the crowd, I'm just here for the free food, I'm, I'm not a follower. He says, if any of you are, like, at any point are embarrassed to be identified with me, to be seen with me, to be called by my name, if any of you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. And I think we're like, oh. <laughs> but he's already said, like, don't freak out. Don't freak out. Just calm down. Take a breath. Whatever you've been trying to protect for yourself, like in your effort to distance yourself from me, you're going to forfeit one day anyway. Whatever you're worried about that people might think about you or opportunities you're going to miss or what you might think might happen to your reputation or your image and your credibility because you've identified with me, like in the moment, I know it's hard. In the moment, it feels like a loss. In the moment, it feels like, like a death. But don't be ashamed of me. Because one day there's a day, of, there's a day of reckoning coming. Like one day in the future, we're going to give an account for our lives. And on that day, like Jesus is saying, as your judge, if, if, if I'm ashamed of you, what will you have gained? What will you really have held on to as you held on to your well-curated image, as you held on to your reputation, as you held on to what you consider to be opportunities, as you held on to some stuff and some income and some dollars, as you held on to some relationships, what will you have gained on that day if I'm ashamed of you because you were ashamed of me? And these things seem like such big sacrifice in the here and now. But Jesus is saying, look, I've already established you value your soul. You do. You value the well-being of that part of you that is eternal. And you value that more than you value anything else on this earth. So don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed to follow me. Because whatever you give up to follow me will one day be a distant memory. And it will be an investment in the condition of your soul. I wish he gave us some more information. I wish there was a little more explanation to what exactly he's talking about. We get it later, and, and we take a look at the gospel accounts and the, and the, and the uh, epistles for sure, but I don't believe he's just talking about heaven and hell here and what comes after this life. I believe he's talking about our place in his kingdom. I mean, I also wish he could explain exactly what is a soul. <laughs> I wish he would have explained what he means by forfeit your soul, but he doesn't. We have to look at context to really get the meaning. And imagine Peter's uh, thinking, okay, I got it. Like, that's great, Jesus. I understand now where you're coming from. I'm in. Let's do this thing. Because later, he's like, if all, you know, all these losers abandon you, I'm with you. Like, I am your guy. I'm your wingman, Jesus. I'm no longer a consumer, just part of the crowd waiting for some free food, hanging around for the show, uh, or some helpful principles. And Jesus is like, oh, Peter, that's nice. That's nice, Peter. But you overestimate your commitment. You overestimate your devotion because I know you, I love you, but I know you and I know you mean well. I know you're sincere right now. I know you, you wrote the date down on the inside of your Bible and all that, Peter, but it's, it's, you're, you're not as in as you think you are. And Peter's kind of offended and he's like, no, Jesus, I'm in. I'll never be ashamed of you. You know the story, right? The night Jesus is arrested and they're all waiting in the shadows to see how the trial's gonna go. And like this middle school girl walks up to Peter and is like, hey dude, you're one of Jesus' guys. And Peter's like, no, I'm not. She's like, oh, I'm pretty sure you are. And he's like, no, I'm not. And he totally denies his association with Jesus. And Jesus catches his eye and he's led off in front of Peter. And the Bible says Peter goes out and he weeps and he weeps and he weeps. And he realizes, I did it. Like, I did it. I tried to hang on to something. That I tried to hang on to something that I'm going to lose anyway. Like, what am I thinking? 
And I'm pretty sure at that point, Peter would have gladly gone back and given up whatever he thought he was trying to save in order to let Jesus know he was not ashamed of him. One day after the resurrection, Jesus kind of circles back around with Peter. He's like, Peter, we need to talk about that thing that happened the night of my arrest. Do you remember that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Peter's like, oh boy, here it comes. And Jesus is like, first of all, Peter, I forgive you. Think you'll get it right next time? Yeah? Okay, tell you what. I'm going to put you in charge of the whole church. And Peter's like, the what? (laughs) The church, this thing I'm putting together for after I'm gone. And you're going to be like the guy, like you're in charge. And he became the voice of the very first days of the church. The guy that just failed this test miserably. But on that day, he went from consumer and user to follower. And later, Peter was crucified as a result of his willingness to deny himself and to identify with Jesus. See, salvation is free, costs you nothing, but following Jesus is going to cost you something. And I don't know what it's going to be for you or what it's been for you. Probably not a one-time thing either. And when you're confronted with it, it feels like a moral imperative, like you're going to sense something on the inside of you, like God is saying, like, this is what you have to do, and nobody else is going to understand it. Nobody else is going to go like, oh yeah, of course, I get it. Great decision, makes total sense. You don't get that kind of support. And I don't know what it's going to be, but on the inside, you're going to know. Like if you're going to be a follower, not just a consumer, like this is the step that you need to take. And oh, usually there's no immediate visible benefit for you. It's not one of those deals where you're like, if I obey God, I get a blessing by the end of the day. You know, if I give this up, God will give me something better before the sun comes up tomorrow. If I make this sacrifice, God will make it up to me with something better. That's bogus. In Mark 8, Jesus is talking long, 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 long term. It's like, I decided to follow Jesus and there may be no immediate visible benefit to me, nothing measurably beneficial for me, in this life, at least, like there aren't any promises made, if you'll notice. It's like I checked the fine print. If anything, it's just the opposite. It sounds more like threats, honestly. But at least I know I'm, not, I'm no longer a consumer and a user and a spectator and a taker. I'm a follower. And it, in the moment, it feels like loss. It feels like you've given something up. It feels like you've given something away that you'll never get back, but you will be, and you'll know that you are a follower of Jesus. Somewhere on this spectrum of consumer and follower is your business and your money and your reputation and all of your relationships and your dreams and what you've been willing to do and who you've been willing to associate with and how you treat people. And you'll find this crossroad touches every area of your life. And Jesus says to us, whatever's in your hand, whatever it is that you're holding on to so tightly, you're going to lose it anyway. So in giving you the opportunity of a lifetime, of your only lifetime, you have the opportunity to give up what you're going to lose anyway for the sake of something that can't be taken from you later. The famous missionary Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's paraphrasing Jesus in Mark 8. Don't miss the opportunity. And every time you decide, God, for your sake and for your kingdom's sake and for Jesus' sake, I'm willing to let go. I'm I'm willing to experience in such a small way a little bit of loss with nothing in return. Then you begin to experience what it is to give something up 
that's going to be taken away from you anyway for the sake of something you rejoice in later for all of eternity. And that's a good deal. That's a good trade. Salvation is free, costs you nothing. If you don't know Jesus and you're not sure where you land on this, you might be on the outer edges of that crowd, right, enjoying the show. And this morning, maybe you're sensing that your time has come for you to take the next step and you need to step up and say, God, I'm not going to do the spectator deal anymore. I'm coming to you through Jesus. For a few minutes, maybe in the quietness of your own heart, just have a little conversation with God right there in the silence of your own space. To say, God, I admit that I have a sin debt that I can't pay. And today I'm trusting Christ's death on the cross as a payment for my sin. I'm accepting the gift of restored relationship with my Heavenly Father. And tell you, you come to God with that spirit, that desire, that intention, and God will do something incredible, something so significant inside of you, you will never be the same. Following Jesus is going to cost you something. But here's the great unknown. Refusing to follow Jesus will cost you who knows. Nobody knows, but if ultimately you're going to lose it anyway, why not lose it with a purpose and for the sake of the Savior who died for your sin and who served you so well? Here's the thing. We don't know what's at stake. You don't know. You don't know what's on the other side of your willingness to say, I'm giving up what I can't keep anyway. Like, you don't know what's at stake. But Jesus says there will come a time when you will be glad that you are a follower and not simply a consumer. Salvation's free, costs you nothing. Following Jesus is eventually going to cost you something. And refusing to follow Jesus, there's a sense in which it could cost you everything. Some of you are sitting near some followers. All around you this morning and throughout this room, There are some people who are all in. They are followers and learners, and they're fully engaged in this process, and they come from all walks of life and all different careers and family backgrounds and traditions, and these are people who have jobs and mortgages, and they're just as busy as any of us, and they have all the responsibilities and all the weight of the world, just like you do. But you know what? The priority of their life is following Jesus. And that's what motivates me when I think about the strength and the health and the potential of our church in this community. It's those of you who are fully engaged in following Jesus. And you haven't arrived, like we're not saying, yeah, you're the perfect ones. No, but you're just steadily moving along in the process. And what I pray is, as a pastor in this church, I pray Jesus raise up among us followers, men and women and teenagers who are full-time, all-in disciples, followers, and learners. So here's my question. Do you find yourself at a place where you're mostly content to just be a consumer and a user? And is it time that you take the next scary, intimidating step and say, Lord Jesus, I want to be a follower. I want to follow you. I want to be a learner. Not only do I want to be a learner, I want to do. Like I want to fully commit to this lifelong process of becoming more and more like the one that I follow to be as much like Jesus as the Holy Spirit enables me to be. And Lord, I'm scared to death about that, but here's my life. Like, it's not much. You know I've made a real mess of some things, but here it is. Is it time for that in your life? Is it time to shift the focus and start living life with an eternal perspective? Deciding that the priority of my life is to be a follower of Jesus and to make disciples and to be fully engaged in the growth process for life.
Jesus said being a follower will cost you. Refusing to be a follower will cost you more. Being a follower will cost you something. Refusing to be a follower could cost you everything. So this is my prayer for all of us today. That if you're a follower of Jesus, let's just hang in there and keep following Jesus. Stay in the process. Do what it takes to stay engaged. Do what it takes to engage in those spiritual practices that feed your soul. To be able to look back at, the, at some point and say, yeah, I'm moving forward. Look, look, I am. I'm moving forward. I'm learning. I'm following bit by bit, becoming the person God is calling me to be. If you're not a follower, you're a believer, right? You've been for a long time, but you're not really a follower, because like your experience with Jesus hasn't cost you anything, hasn't required anything of you, then is it time for you, I'm not going to ask, I'm going to rephrase that, it is time for you to take the next step. I don't know exactly what that means for you. But when that's your heart's desire, God has this uncanny way of showing you your next steps. And as we all commit ourselves and surrender ourselves to being life long learners and followers of Jesus, God shows up in that way.